It's April 4, 2022. The pandemic is ebbing, although the Omicron variant, the second one, remains a concern. There have been 80 million cases reported in the U.S., roughly 980,000 official deaths, according to the record. Importantly, though, the 14-day change, cases are down 9%, but testing is up 10%, so we should be catching uh, new cases. Hospitalizations are down 28%. ICU hospitalizations are down 36%, and deaths are down 41% versus 14 days ago. That's good news. Today, we're going to talk about interest rates and the yield curve. It's not as boring as it sounds, it's important, and it's easy to understand the basics. For purposes of this discussion, and actually in general, when people speak of, when professionals speak of interest rates, they're generally talking about the U.S. Treasury market. It's the largest market, it's the most important, it's the most liquid, easy to get in and out of. It's the rate by which almost all other rates are measured. So in other words, let's use the 10-year bond, which is now trading at about 2.5%. You would say your credit card, which has an 18% yield, or an 18% rate, I should say, is 15.5 points above the 10-year treasury. Conversely, if you had a 0% interest offer, that would be two and a half points below the 10-year treasury, which as we said is at two and a half percent. Why this is important will become clear a little bit later. Now we're also gonna talk about the yield curve. And all the yield curve is, is plotting the time versus interest rate on a graph. The three-month bill, the six-month treasury bill, the two-year bond, the five-year, the 10-year, the 20-year, the 30. And in a normal environment, that slope is upwards, that graph is upwards. If you think about it, it makes sense. If you were going to buy a treasury bond, buy an investment, you'd want to be compensated, you want to be paid for holding that investment for a longer period of time. Thus, the investment at 10-year or buying a treasury 10-year bond should pay you more than buying a, let's say, two-year note from the U.S. Treasury. That just makes sense. But now we're in an abnormal situation with something called the inverted yield curve. Now, all that means is you're getting paid more for the shorter end and less to hold things longer, which intuitively makes no sense because on average, there's no reason you would buy a 10-year bond at 2.5% if you can get 2.6 or 2.7% to invest for two years. Now, there are all sorts of other scenarios. What do you do after two years to reinvest your money? 
you know, what's the, where you think the economy is getting better or worse, but we're going to put that aside for a minute. All we're going to talk about is the fact that we're in an abnormal situation. The yield curve is negatively sloping. So when you go from left to right, the curve is going down such that you're getting paid less for the longer bonds than you are for holding the shorter term instruments. Now, without all the background reasons, this happens when there are expectations that the future is not as good as it is today, when things are going to worsen. So in essence, the thinking becomes, the future's dark, I want to be a little more conservative, I'm going to sell my longer term investments where I can, and watch what's going to happen. The economy's going to slow down, you know, I need to pay attention. The inverted yield curve has been shown to predict recessions. Now, it's a very specific piece of research, and they compare the three-month, what we call a treasury bill, the very short term, to the 10-year bond. And that spread, meaning if the three-month bill is trading at a quarter of a percent, you can pay a quarter of a percent to own that. And the 10-year bond is at 2.5%. The spread is 225 positive, the difference between the two. Today, that still remains positive. But from two years out, two years, five years, versus the 10-year, that's negative. Meaning you get paid more on the two-year or five-year than you do on the 10-year. So that's beginning to suggest many people leave that a recession's coming. And I'll add one other piece to that. The curve between 10 years and 30 years is almost flat. So remember, in a normal economy, in a growing economy where things are good, the curve should slope up from three months all the way out to 30 years. You should get paid more for owning a longer-term investment. So the question is, if the economy is so good right now, if employment is very high, unemployment is low, we're hearing things about the great migration, pardon me, the great resignation, how can it possibly be that the future is bleak? Let's think about what's happened over the last couple of years. So we had a pandemic where everything shut down. We're coming out of that. And what's happened? Stock prices have gone way, way up. Why? Things have gotten better. The employment picture is such that there's very heavy demand for workers. So we hear of the great resignation. I don't want to do that job. I like this job better, so I'm going to quit and take another one. You have the ability to do that now because things are good. We've had supply chain issues. We've all heard about that. That's created shortages, meaning we can't get goods. The things that are outsourced or coming from other parts of the world can't get to us. So it's created shortages in commodities and chips used in building computers, 
And if you've tried to buy a new car, you'll see prices are up quite a bit. They're waiting times. Used car prices are way, way up. Been to the grocery store, you're seeing prices go up on all matters of food. So what that means is we've got inflation. Now, all inflation means is that prices are going up. And it means they're going up faster than the rate of growth in the economy is what we really care about. But for the purpose of the discussion, the Consumer Price Index, which is a kind of a fake basket of goods that's used to measure prices over time, is up over 7%. Now, the bankers and, and Federal Reserve officials that are responsible for working our economy have a target rate of 2%. So we are substantially above their target rate of inflation. We're at 7%, remember. And you will hear in the news, you'll hear terms such as the Fed is behind. The Fed is behind the curve. What that means is inflation is starting to get out of hand. There are shortages and the Fed needs to do something. Now, what they will generally do is raise interest rates because when you raise interest rates and the cost of borrowing, remember, it's good for savers and investors, but when you're borrowing to expand businesses, when that cost goes up, you do less of it. So the economy slows. That's the theory. So you might want to pick up a pen, but I want you to have and know where to get prevailing interest rates. So if you go to Bloomberg.com, across the top, you'll see quick links. And one of them says rates and bonds. If you click on that and then scroll down to the Americas and then click on the United States, it will bring up the current rates. And here's where they are today. There are six or seven of them. Three month is at 0.55. We call that 0.55 basis points. 100 basis points equal 1%. So we're at 55 basis points or about half a percent to lend the government money for three months. The sixth month is 1.05, 1.05. The one year is 1.63. The two year is 242, 242. The five-year is 255, and this is where it gets interesting. The 10-year is 2.40. So at 2.4%, it's a little bit below the two-year at 2.42. So that's the inversion. It slopes a little bit downward from two years to five years. Pardon me, from two years to 10 years. 242 to 240, that's the inverted yield curve. And then the 30-year is 2.46, 2.46%. So to put this in perspective for you, if you invested $100,000, $100,000 in the two-year, you would earn 2.42% or $2,420 per year. If you lent the money to the government for 30 years by buying a 30-year bond, 
you would get 2.46% or $2,460 annually. So to risk your money for another 28 years, you get $40 more. That's insignificant. It's flat. Now, the Federal Reserve targets the short end, something called the Fed funds rate. But without getting to that, we'll just use the three-month as a, as a proxy, as our measure of what the Fed's going to do. So it's currently about a half a percent, and they just raised it by one quarter of one percent a few weeks back. Now, they never quite tell us what they're going to do, but it's been pretty clearly telegraphed that in their next meeting next month, they will raise by 50 basis points or half a percent. And then it becomes a guessing game after that. How much are they going to raise? But they've told us, they have told us that their target is around two and a half percent. Some want it to be 2%. Some want it to be 3%. So you can see that they're pushing it up towards the two-year and the 10-year. So if nothing changes and they go to 2.5%, then we've got a flat yield curve all the way across. Now, things obviously will change, but just for purposes of illustration. Now, the yield curve is flat, we would say, from two years out, or a little bit inverted here and there. The inversion is very, very small, so it's not clear, but clearly the curve has flattened and gotten towards inverted. Uh, and in fact, is a little bit inverted. The reason people pay attention to this, or or one of the academics behind it, a Fed official, uh, has done research on the three-month versus the 10-year, which recall currently, it's not inverted. It's not even close. It's 55 basis points versus, uh, what did we say, versus 240. So there's still a spread of 185 basis points or 1.85%, but it's coming closer and it's tightening. So the research done by the Fed official went back to 1968. And when the three-year, 10-year inverts, it's a predictor of recession. It's worked 100% of the time. And I believe there were nine recessions since 1968. So 100% of the time, when the three-year tenure went negative sloping, there was a recession in the offing. Now, there's a lag, and there's variance around how long, but for, for a general number, it's about two years before the, registr- the uh, recession sets in. Now, we went inverted a little bit about a year ago. So if that was the signal then sometime over the next year, we ought to enter recession or the beginnings of recession. So some would argue we're already there. Okay, if this is the signal, we've got another year or two. But this is what the debate is all around at this point. So let's talk about how the Fed operates and how they adjust interest rates and the things they do. So we've already talked about them raising and lowering the Fed funds rate, and they've telegraphed that they're raising that rate. Now, during the pandemic, they did something else for two reasons. One was to stabilize the market 
and the other was to put money out into circulation. And we'll talk about these two things. So during the pandemic, when things, I won't say they froze up, but markets weren't operating efficiently, the Fed stepped in and for pretty much the first time ever, they started buying non-treasury bonds. So that mean, those mean that means debt issued by corporations, by Microsoft and Apple and, and General Motors. So they stepped into that market to support that market. That's what we call the buyer of last resort. They act as the buyer of last resort to stabilize the market. That was one reason. The other reason is when the Fed buys, this is a little harder to think through, so just follow me. When the Fed buys from the public, they put cash out to you. So you sell it to the government, back to the Fed, they give you cash. Now, that's what we call putting money into circulation. So they did two things with these purchases. They supported the market and they put cash out into the marketplace. And they wanted you to redeploy that cash into investments or building your business or to stop you from going bankrupt, frankly. So that was going on. They did one other thing, though. They started buying equities. They started buying in the stock market, which they had absolutely never done, primarily through ETFs. But they put liquidity into the marketplace by buying ETFs. We don't know which ones or how much, but they also supported the market there. So what we call the Fed's balance sheet is now up to $9 trillion, $9 trillion. And if you want to have some fun, go back and listen to a podcast I did about how many zeros there are in a trillion. I'll give you the answer. In a trillion, there are 18 zeros. A million has six zeros. A billion has 12. And a trillion has 18. So nine trillion is a lot. It more than doubled during the pandemic and it was already inflated uh, since then, or prior to the pandemic. So now where are we? The Fed has told us they are going to stop purchasing debt, which they've already done a while back in, in equities, and they are going to start bleeding it off, shrinking their balance sheet. They're going to stop supporting the markets. So of this $9 trillion, you know, how much are they going to sell and at what rate is the big question, but just assume they're going to be selling two, three, four trillion dollars over time. Now there are maturities, so the short-term debt they bought will mature on its own, but there are other things that just won't. So we're going to have a change in direction. The Fed is going to be a seller instead of a buyer. Now what happens when there are more sellers than buyers? prices go down. And in the bond market, yields or rate and price are negatively correlated. They're the opposite. So if a bond's price goes down, the yield goes up, the interest rate goes up. So for example, if the 10-year is trading at 242, I think that's where we said it was, 
and the Fed comes in hypothetically to sell $100 billion of the 10-year, that price is going to go down, right? More supply, price goes down. So that yield will go from 242 to something higher, 250, 60, 70. Now, this is happening or will be happening at a time when we already have prices going up because of inflation. So what I'll say to you is this is the worst. It's a bad scenario, right? They're going to be selling into the marketplace and raising interest rates, which they want to do anyway. But we've got inflation and inflation is running ahead of it's higher at 7% than the yield on the bonds. And just again, just trust me that the it's, it's not a good situation and the Fed is late to the party. Now, think about it from the position of the investor or the person that already owns those 10-year bonds. If you know that in the future, the relatively near term, there's going to be a big seller coming to the marketplace and prices are going to be going down, what do you do? You sell your bonds. You sell your 10-year bonds. At minimum, you're not likely to buy more. Now, remember that the Chinese government and Chinese investors are the largest holder outside of the U.S. of U.S. bonds. So logic says at minimum they're neutral and likely they're going to be sellers of the bonds, which should raise interest rates. Good for savers, bad for borrowers. All right, so then... Why are interest rates falling? Why is the curve flattening and rates coming down? Well, they're coming down because there's a belief in recession. There's a belief that natural demand for, the, for borrowing is shrinking. And it's shrinking because people, companies, are not investing at the same rate in future growth. Maybe because they're worried about a recession. It may be because there's a supply chain issue and they can't get the inputs they need to produce so they don't need a new factory. Whatever it is, there's downward pressure, meaning rates are coming down. When rates come down, Eventually, if it's normal and a normal upward sloping yield curve, when rates come down, it's the same thing as the Fed cutting rates. The economy should accelerate again. Okay, let's stop there for a second and think. So the economy is running very hot. It's growing rapidly because it came off a very negative pandemic era, so it's growing quickly. There are lots of, jo- lots of demand for jobs, so it's good for workers good for employees. What happens tomorrow? So the fear, the idea, the signal coming from the yield curve is negative. Things are slowing. Demand is demand slowdown is coming. At this point, you might stop and look at the written piece that accompanies this. And in that piece, I include a couple of videos and some commentary 
the three people that I cite are Bill Gross, used to be with a firm called PIMCO, and was the first really large whale in the area. He earned the name the Bond King. Then there's another fellow who is very prominent now. In fact, they used to work together and had a tough breakup. It's a, it's a good inside baseball story. But his name is Muhammad El Arian. And uh, there's a video there with him as well. And then I quote a third fellow by the name of Jeff Gunlock, who has kind of been given to him, but he's kind of self-appointed himself as the new Bond King. And, uh, well, let me just let me share some of the comments that Bill Gross made. Bill said, to be a Bond King, you have to have a kingdom. PIMCO was a $1 to $2 trillion operation, and Gunlock has $134 billion and is not growing. So what he's saying there is, you know, we're a whale, or we were a whale, and he's a minnow. So how can he be a king? Then he goes on to say, Gross goes on to say, central banks and governments are the new Bond Kings and Queens. So the term Bond King is somewhat passe. So without all the backdrop and information, what's going on here is besides, you know, ribbing the other guy who's got it, they both got huge egos. I'd argue that one has earned a higher place on the mantle than the other, but that's just opinion. Uh, but what's going on is Bill Gross is saying, look, in the old days, we were the whale. We could control things or have major impact. And they still can have impact, but not like they used to. Now, central governments, through intervening in the markets and the like, they're really the whale. Now, I'm going to make reference to, to one other thing that Bill Gross said, and I'm going to suggest that you, you go back to the written piece and watch the videos again and read the commentary. But he refers to Kathy Wood, and I wrote a piece about Kathy Wood of ARK Investment a few weeks back uh, where she was really under fire. She's in the public markets, but her funds are, they, they really are, longer term and what we call private equity or seed money almost are the type of investments they made, although they invest in, in public companies. And her funds have really gotten hammered. They're down. I mean, they're up a bunch the last few weeks, but they're, they're down a lot. I mean, they were down, I think, 60% from the top at one point. They probably gained half of that back, maybe a touch more. But anyway, so Bill Gross, referring to Kathy Wood, says she doesn't have an excellent sense of value and when to buy and what to pay. She seems to think that down the road, her theory will be validated. So that's a very uh, tongue-in-cheek way of saying she's got a two-year track, two good years, and maybe doesn't deserve all the hype. So I just put that out there. And the piece I wrote is called Kathy Wood is Taking Fire. All right, so from here, from here I want to focus on uh, what Mohammed Al-Arian said and it's in the video that I included. He thinks that the Fed has to choose between two bad alternatives. All right. He thinks that the, the median case, right, the average case, is stagflation. Now, stagflation means you have inflation and no growth. We still have growth, but remember, the yield curve is suggesting that growth is slowing down. So what this economist is saying is the most likely outcome is that we have stagflation. Right? We had this with, in the Jimmy Carter years, right, where you had, and even Nixon at one point. Remember, no growth, 
Maybe the economy is shrinking, economy slowing, and inflation. So you're earning less money or the same money, and prices of everything around you are going up. That disproportionately hurts people at the lower end of the economic spectrum, right? If gas, and I saw gasoline in Los Angeles the other day uh, where I live, at almost $7 a gallon for super. $7 a gallon. So if you're at the lower end of the economic spectrum, you've got to commute to work, and you're now paying $7 for gas, $7 a gallon for gas, and your food is more expensive, et cetera, et cetera, you're hurting, right? So that leads to, in a consumer-driven economy like ours, that leads to an economic slowdown, you know, and further exacerbates the negativity. So stagflation being the most likely outcome, and at opposite ends of the spectrum, you have the possibility of a recession, right, which would happen if the Fed raises interest rates too quickly or can't control things, right? Recession means unemployment goes up, you've got an interest rate problem, and we're worse off. Or the other end, where the Fed misses it altogether, and we have what they call a hard landing, where it's a really difficult recession, and interest rates are spiraling up still, and we can't get a control over things. That's what happened prior to the Paul Volcker years. So the net-net is the yield curve is giving us a signal. It's a signal that things are slowing. We don't know when or how much, but you've got to pay attention to it. The stock market is following along, although prices are still going up, which often happens. But a company like Walmart, which is considered a defensive stock, in other words, someplace when you have to put money somewhere, but times are tough, where do you put money? You put it in Walmart. And the reason is, as a defensive stock, if you think about the real economy, what happens? If you're paying more for gas and food, you're looking for cheaper alternatives. So if you're shopping at Target, you now go to Walmart. That's, that's the thesis. And we haven't even included the impact of potential war. Now, the conflict that's happening now, the war that's happening now, is, is bad, you know, many, many ways. But economically, uh, you know, a good p- proportion of the world's wheat is created in the region. You have supply chain further getting knocked off balance. So imagine what happens if the war doesn't come to an end or it expands or we're drawn into it. You know, then, then all bets are off. So what I'll say to conclude is, if you go back to the written piece, the very top video is, what is a yield curve? It will go through everything we've talked about here. And then the last video, if you want a more detailed uh, review at this point, which, uh, which is actually very good, it's, what is yield curve inversion? So I thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope it's helpful. I would ask and urge you that uh, if this has been helpful, you know, like the podcast, comment, I'll respond to comments and uh, comments and questions. So thank you again and until next time.